Hello and welcome to Anarchy SF Podcast, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. I'm Yanai and joining me is... Eden, as always, we are still self-identified. Good. I hope that doesn't become like something we have to say every time. We still remain ourselves. <laughs> Actually, that's them. a cool catchphrase for like a philosophy adjacent podcast. Yeah, still, still self-identified. Take that, Hume. Yeah, so, so this time we're going to talk about Akira. And before we yeah. mention anything else about the movie, I just want to say that if anyone wants to watch the movie following this podcast, I would say that there's some content warning before it. There is a lot of violence in it, which some people might not like. It's pretty graphic. There is also mm-hmm. some sexual violence there that is very graphic. I'll also go one further and say that there's a lot of body haul. Yeah, body haul is a good word to use. Yeah. So if that's something that you find concerning, either skip this movie or sort of brace yourself, whatever fits your standards. But let's sort of describe the movie. You want to take us to there? Yeah, sure. So Akira is one of the greatest science fiction films of all time. And I can say that because everybody agrees with me, (laughs) even the mainstream and smaller places and like all the cool hipsters. It's like liked in all slices of the sci-fi community. It was released in... 1988 and back then it was the most expensive anime film of its time like most anime films especially back then it's based on a manga of the same name and its rendition is supposed to be pretty faithful to the source and it is also very much a high watermark within the cyberpunk movement and even if you haven't seen it and don't know about it it has influenced things like Blade Runner, Space Odyssey and many more and numerous uh, films within this kind of like sci-fi vibe. There's a lot that of that is the manga. There's I, a lot of like proto cyberpunk aesthetics to it. Like yeah, seeing this alone, I wouldn't say that it is cyberpunk. It's just that a lot of cyberpunk just took stuff from here and ran with it. Um, I mean that's always the like the challenge, right? With proto stuff or stuff that is on the margin, that it's hard to give it its denominator because cyberpunk didn't even exist back then. But I think in retrospect, it has a lot of elements of cyberpunk. Again, considering the fact that the manga came out in 1982, right? Yeah. That's before, if I'm not, someone's gonna correct me or whatever. But if it's before New Romancer, before all these like great works inside the genre, it was also a success. Which, if you know something about the history of anime, is not something to be trifled with in the 80s and in the 90s anime was in kind of a crisis and it wasn't really clear where it was going so this being like a huge commercial success was very important for the genre's continuation in fact this ghost in the shell and neon genesis evangelion are credited with keeping anime alive and very briefly it describes Neo Tokyo. Tokyo was destroyed in 1988, which is interesting because that's the year where the movie came out. And in 2019, which is in our past, it was rebuilt on the ruins of the old city. And the same power that destroyed the city back then, which is kind of like telekinetic individuals, is resurging once again and was once again threatening the city. And in a cyberpunk fashion, our heroes, which are innocents trying to survive in the cool and dangerous world of the Neo-Tokyo, get involved with these powers. Yeah, and I would say a lot of the plot doesn't unfold until pretty late in the movie. Yeah, The movie does a kind of interesting shift from a very individual perspective that it starts Mm. with and then slowly rolls into the more environmental, the more political structures of the city that it's describing. Yeah, I think it's a very good point and a good excuse for me to say, putting everything aside, like the science fiction and the anarchy and all that stuff, Akira is just a really good movie, technically. It's a well-told story, perhaps owing to the fact that it's rendering some sort of literary work, but also it does a really good job in making you care about the characters, setting them up, which is really saying something for cyberpunk, right? Like, even if you think of the obvious comparison to Akira is Ghost in the Shell, right? That's always the two comparisons that are made. Ghost in the Shell is not about characters, right? Like, it literally doesn't have characters. Even the protag is literally a shell, right? And it doesn't do a really good job. It's an amazing movie, but it doesn't do as good a job as describing its characters. And this movie is just patient, right? It takes its time and has really good pacing. It's also capable of keeping you hooked even if the big plot is not unfolding yet, which I think really makes it stand out from the crowd and this genre. Yeah, pacing is important and these small moments where we find tangential facts about our characters. Mm -hmm. So what do they want out of life? What they experience as moments of triumph? 
we get kind of early on, and then it sort of unfolds as the stakes get higher. We see these characters reveal what they, I don't know, actually want when they're giving power to sort of go at it. Yeah. And let's do a quick synopsis of what you mentioned is sort of the overarching plot. And what we have from the bottom up is a group of, I don't know, teenagers, right? They're in high school. Yeah. That get into some petty crime, I guess. They're a biker gang or something. And in a very, and we'll talk about this, a very violent depiction of Tokyo, of Neo-Tokyo. And they sort of rub elbows with their establishment. And as they sort of try to survive in their city, they come up against this kind of more epic showdown between these super powerful individuals and the state. And they get their uh, role within it as they learn what happened in the beginning of the movie. The first shot of the movie is Tokyo being blown up and we don't see what blew up Tokyo. And maybe the first time you saw it was a long time ago, but I just saw it and I was like, oh, this is the atomic bomb. They're worried about the atomic bomb. It's 1988. It's before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So to find out that the movie sort of tells you, no, it's actually not an atomic bomb. It's something completely different. Well, I actually don't agree with that. Oh, Um, okay. I think it is the atomic bomb. (laughs) Okay, so obviously neither of us are Japan experts, and we probably like should have invited Noyan or something, (laughs) because he is. But Japanese society, and especially film, has been obsessed with the atomic bomb, well, ever since they are the only country to have been bombed using it. Um, Oh, Obviously, the most famous example is Godzilla, who is an allegory to the atomic bomb, right? Godzilla gets created because of atomic radiation and becomes like this force that destroys humanity and you cannot restrain it. But in other iterations, he's a force for good, right? Like he's fighting the Hydra monster, I forget its name. And sometimes it saves humanity, like Godzilla versus Donkey Kong and shit like that. Not Donkey Kong, King Kong. (laughs) Donkey Kong is from a different thing. So Japan is constantly obsessed with the idea of the atomic bomb. And I think Akira, and again, Akira, uh, spoilers, mega major spoilers. Akira is an individual who destroyed the city previously. He's like the most powerful telekinetic being ever created. He's created by the military, right? He's not born with these abilities. They make him in an experiment. That is the atomic bomb. It's the military industrial scientific complex coming together in search of a weapon to defeat their enemies and creating an energy which cannot be contained and which ends up not once but twice and again two atomic bombs right so i think that's of some significance here it twice destroys tokyo so i 100 percent think that akira is part of that kind of tradition in japanese storytelling to create allegories to the atomic bomb and specifically to tell the story of science as pandora's box uh-huh Right? And if you think about the myth, the story of Pandora's box, you know, we only remember like the end of it, like she opens the box and all of pandemonium gets released and creation is doomed. But like, there's good reason to open the box. Pandora needs it to escape her fate. She's like chained to this mythological, you know, very Greek fate and doom. And the box is like her only way to escape that doom. She doesn't do it because like she's depicted later, like she's frivolous or just a child or whatever, right? So same thing here. I think the movie does a really good job in saying, you know, those people who developed Akira and all these powers, like they're not idiots. They didn't do it because they're stupid or they don't care about life or stuff like that. On the contrary, they did it because they are patriots and they love their country and they love, you know, they want to protect people and they want to be you know, strong and powerful and to win. But inadvertently, they unleash this terrible thing that they, A, don't really understand. And there's a really good scene in a second that I'll focus on and B, can't really control. So for the don't understand, you just watched it. It's been a while since I watched it. But there's a scene where they're like looking at Akira's power levels or Tetsu's power levels. Mm-hmm. And there's like this diagram, spectrogram in the middle. Yeah. And they do the, it's over 9,000. Right, like, oh, the power is off the charts. Yeah. I can't compute it anymore. And like, the scientists become useless. It's like their machines no longer quantify what is going on with Tetsu and Akira and the powers and everything. And the film ends on like a mystical, spiritual, scientific kind of message, right? Like they go to a different dimension or like a higher level of existence. I think it makes like a really good point about, yeah, science gets the ball rolling but then it is unable to contain or even understand the social ramifications of what it has unleashed. 
yeah, there's some critique of science for science's sake, because the scientist there, when he sees this pattern, he's mainly interested in the fact that the pattern is sort of amazing. It sort of yeah. reveals something to him that we don't even learn. And from our perspective, we think this scientist, he has no idea what his social role is. His social role is, yeah. to, is right now to help contain this phenomenon. And he doesn't care. He just wants to see it sort of play out in order to figure out what's Studied. going on. Yeah. A kind of unbiased care for the truth that just demolishes everything else. Yeah. And, and I think that takes us back to the military people, right? I think it does a good job in, you know, evil doesn't exist, right? It's not like there's no villain in, in Akira, really. There's no, like, general sitting in a dark room cackling to himself as he unleashes this thing. It gets out from under people who have basically good intentions, right? No one there is like, we will create this weapon and use it against Tokyo to cleanse the rabble or whatever. It's not that. It's people doing their job. And we'll talk about, we have to, about bureaucracy and the collapse of the Japanese state and all that in a second. But let's focus on the people, right? It just gets out from underneath them. Yeah, I think it's interesting about Pandora's box because it kind of reminds me of Schrodinger's cat, where people just mm. remember the tiniest part of that allegory. Oh, there's a cat in the box. What the hell will happen? And not like why the allegory is important and what's interesting about it. Because there's also in Pandora's box, I think, the fact where after everything gets out, the last thing left there is hope. And then hope also sort of emerges into the world. And I think Akira also has this moment where after all of the devastation, there's the potential that maybe these sort of super powerful individuals will return to the world at a later time after having learned to master their power and not be as destructive. Yeah, and I think it's also like, like Pandora's box, it is an attempt to explain why evil things happen, like why bad things happen. It's a sort of, and again, philosophy adjacent podcast, it's sort of a theodicy. Is that how you say it in English? I've never actually said this word before in English. Theodicy, yeah. Theodicy, yeah, like a vindication of the idea of God, right? Like if, and we're not going to have this discussion here, but like if God exists, then why is there evil? And both Pandora's box and I think Akira to an extent talk about like the temptation of an entity like a single creature that wants to save itself or even save mankind just like the scientist who supposedly wants the truth to better the planet they inadvertently you know they exceed the role or they attempt to play with things which are not theirs to play with and they end up unleashing this madness upon the world yeah and i think so science here is one sort of representative of this idea of control and i think the concept of control and how you do control, and what happens when you come too maybe violent in your attempt for control, too restrictive, is also studied through the way that social order is managed in Akira. So yeah. the maintenance of social power in Akira is extremely direct, personal, and violent. There's a scene there that's, I think, maybe giving the game away, where they're in school, and there's this school, I don't know, administrator or something, that's just like, you're a bunch of, I don't know, lowlifes, and then he slaps each of them, and while he slaps yeah. them, he says the word discipline. So it's like, slap, discipline, slap, discipline. And it's so on the nose that I think what the movie is trying to say is, look at this model of control and how the seeds of rebellion are already within it, in how much power it sort of puts on the individual in order to keep the individual in its place. And right. I feel like I haven't lived in Japan. I don't know what the situation there is like. But in a lot of Western countries, what we have is a sort of evolved form of this, something that has sort of absorbed the lessons of not specifically Akira, but stuff like that, where there's a move described by Deleuze from societies of discipline to societies of control. So... Yeah. Societies of discipline are a concept considered by or formulated by Foucault, Michel Foucault, important philosopher of the 20th century. Yeah, I don't think we need to introduce Michel Foucault. Yeah. <laughs> so he wrote about a lot of stuff. One of the things he's interested in is biopolitics, which basically means the way in which the state manages the way that people live. So mm -hmm. there's different movements that Foucault recognizes where before the 17th century, societies were more interested in what you can't do. So, you know, you can't steal from the king's coffers. And if you do, the state will kill you. 
But as long as you're not stealing from the king's coffers or hiding your taxes, the state doesn't really care what you're doing. It's just not collecting any statistics on it. It's not asking anyone. It doesn't care. And what starts in the 17th century is what Foucault calls biopolitics, which means not only managing death, but managing life. So it's not just mm-hmm. killing people for defying the government, it's telling people how to live. And then you start seeing registry of birth rates, death rates, disease, stuff like that, where the government is now concentrating sort of statistics, information about how we live our lives. And from there, it starts to dictate what should we do in order to live, quote unquote, better lives, right? So those are societies of discipline, and they're very characterized by these structures like the school, the prison, the factory. Yeah. What's special about these structures is that they discipline bodies, making them into docile bodies, bodies that will do whatever is expected of them. So schools do it by telling you to sit down during a long lecture, always telling you where to be, always telling you when you have to be there, and they sort of force a habit on you of just obeying orders, right? And then factories do something similar, and prisons, obviously, but everything is sort of drilled into you. So that's societies of discipline. And what we see in Akira is a society of discipline that clashes with the main problem for societies of discipline, which is that they have to show their hand too much. So too many times, someone will try to defy these rules and be slapped. And that's why Deleuze marks a transfer to societies of control. Societies of control are characterized by First of all, automatic forms of control. So you don't even have the possibility of resistance. A great example of this is gates in the subway that wouldn't let you get in unless you paid. So in many cases, when trains were initially created, those gates didn't exist. And you just buy a ticket, get on the train, and, you know, maybe someone would check your ticket at a certain point, but maybe you just snuck on the train. But now the crime itself is just impossible. Because you can't go through, I mean, of course, it's possible you can jump over the gate, you can do a lot of things, but it's much harder to just even defy authority. Authority becomes sort of automatic. And with I think there's a, yeah. there's a better example and one that's like more pertinent right now, and that is the Democratic primaries. Look at Bernie Sanders, right? He had to run through the Democratic establishment to even have a chance at becoming anything like a viable candidate. It's not that someone went to Bernie Sanders' house and beat him up until he became a Democrat. There was just no other options. All other options were cut off by the institution. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And then, well, we can analyze just that scenario a lot because then, you know, he has to, uh, quote unquote, play by democratic rules, which means super delegates and stuff like that. But to bring us back to societies of control more abstractly, it's another thing that they do is they sort of make you police yourself much more because you're just used to there being no option of resistance because you don't see the thing that's oppressing you you sort of get into the habit of just doing what you're told because you assume there isn't an alternative mm-hmm. and what we see in akira is exactly how societies of discipline sort of crumble against resistance even a little bit of resistance even these guys on bikes that shouldn't be on bikes The establishment just can't handle it because they're stepping out of line. So I think there's two things. I totally agree with what you just said. And I think there's like two things to elaborate on that bring it back to Akira and raise some interesting points. The first one, which is less important, but it's interesting, is that these are like, you can see why this is part of cyberpunk, right? Because these are the questions of cyberpunk literature. And I think they can be all put under this like big umbrella of what can you do when you're being dominated so i'm bringing up another like of michel foucault's ideas that domination is when the relationship you have with power is so one-sided to power's side that resistance becomes impossible so for example prison is a good example of domination like the prisoner is completely under power's thumb and they can't even like move without power being able to stop them or to control them and then foucault dealt with the question what do you do when you're dominated? And I think he had a very bad answer, which is you always have the freedom to kill yourself. So like even in dominance, of course, I'm being very crass here and it's much more complicated than that. But when you're dominated, you always have the ability to exit 
which is a very Christian idea, by the way, but maybe we'll get that into a future episode. And Cyberpunk kind of wants to ask the question, no, like, I don't want to kill myself, I still want to live, but how do I live in a situation where the state is such a huge monolith that even the possibility, like you said, of resistance is being denied? I think Cyberpunk's answer is bad, but you can see it in Akira. The answer is, be a delinquent, right? Like, graffiti buildings, pee in the street, be a hacker, like, deface websites, drive a loud bike, and dress in flamboyant ways. It's like a sort of resistance, right? It's a small resistance. Don't raise your head too much, but also don't take it lying down. And I think it's a very 80s perspective, right? It's kind of like punk, and that's why it's called cyberpunk. It's like punk in that, you know, the Sex Pistols didn't write a manifesto. The Clash didn't write a manifesto. It was about, like, getting drunk and being rude and cursing where you're not supposed to curse and, like, rebelling against British proper society. Now, Japan also has a very proper and polite and stifled high society, right? And again, we're not experts and I don't want to be, like, orientalist and talk about, ooh, the modern samurai and all that bullshit. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Japanese society as it existed in the 80s, which was torn between capitalism, traditionalism, xenophobia, but also a growing interest in the West. And these questions of how does a new generation act in this very rigid but also crumbling society? I think that last part is really interesting. So just Neo Tokyo, just, just yeah, to formulate ahead. what you said about Cyberpunk's answer, and I agree that that's Cyberpunk's answer, and I agree that it's not a good answer. But just to formulate what it would look like. So the idea of being delinquent, and that's sort of the premise of this movie, because the hero is first asserted as part of a biker gang. By the way, a biker gang yeah. that also causes wanton violence that is antisocial in the sense that for example, they push a rival gang member through the window of a restaurant. You know, it's really violent, yeah. it's really dangerous. And and I think that's a very interesting point, just like a side point. You know, people today, when everything has been whitewashed, the message of Hollywood, because Hollywood is totally accepted punk, right, is, oh, no, they're only rude towards the cops, right? Like when a little old lady causes the riot, they'll stop rioting and they will help her. That's not the ethos that was in the 80s, right? Yeah. In the 80s, they didn't give a fuck about anyone. The idea of being delinquent is to push little old ladies in the street, right? That's the form of resistance. No one is safe because delinquency is inherently unbounded. Yeah, and I think if we theorize the idea, the idea is to create sites of resistance. So if the state won't give us even the person that will sort of clash with us, we will create our own sites of resistance by just breaking rules for the purpose of breaking rules. And that gives us sort of the initial friction in order to maybe ignite some kind of resistance. But I do agree that it fails. And my last point will be about that, but I won't go into it just yet because I want to hear more about what you have to say about this capitalist conflict within Japan. Yeah, so an important thing to note about Neo-Tokyo is that it's falling apart even before it gets blown up for the second time, right? Like the project of rebuilding it after the first explosion, the first singularity basically, has failed. It is built like an inherently unjust, dirty, malfunctioning, and just a shitty city, right? And I think there's a statement here about a few things. One, obviously the current state of Japan and the current state of Japan's capitalism. But let's put that to the side for a second. We'll get back to it. I think more so, there's a critique here of blank slate revolutionary ideas. Like these ideas of if we had an apocalypse, we could rebuild a better society after it. Or even if we make it less abstract, like these ideas of urban renewal that involve tearing down a city. And this is like a huge rabbit hole and I won't go full into it. But like if you think about the great modernist architectures, like the Baron Haussmann, who was part of the reformation of Paris. And of course, like Corbusier, like I'm probably butchering that name. Holy fuck. Yeah. And his idea of like tearing down old neighborhoods, ideas which had an immense impact in Europe. Like, for example, the whole old city of Madrid was completely shoveled down to make way for the Grand Via, which is like their main road. Same thing in Paris, where whole neighborhoods were destroyed, but also in Japan, which experienced in the the 70s, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, an insane spurt of growth, which was like parallel to Germany's economic miracle after World War II. Jesus Christ, I'm going down the rabbit hole, but we're not going to compare it to that. You just have to know that in the 80s, 
the narrative was the Japanese companies are going to overtake American companies, right? Yeah. In management practices, in dividends, in profit, in effectiveness, like America was viewed as it is today, by the way, as lazy, pampered, fat, yeah, you can see it. You can see it with the cars. People were very worried about Japanese cars in America sort of defeating the traditional yeah. American cars. Exactly. And that's where a lot of Orientalism came in as well. Like, oh, the American CEO is like fat and he's opportunistic and he's a glutton and he's only doing it for the money and he's like drinking whiskey all day. And the Japanese executive, oh, he's like a modern samurai, right? Like he's, and it's bullshit just to be clear. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't share those views. I'm just depicting them. He's like a monk. He, you know, does karate every morning and he meditates and he wears like simple suits because he's all about honor and success and the company exceeding its expectations and stuff like that now some of it was grounded in reality like i don't know if you know this but the reason it's called kanban board is because it was invented in japan and all these management practices that we use today were invented in japan in the 80s they were working off british and american ideas but a lot of modern corporate culture was formed in japan in the 80s but this movie was released in 88 and that's the beginning of the big bust where the boom of Japan's economy, surprise, failed to translate into any meaningful advantages for its populace. Why would that happen? That's how capitalism works. Yeah, if only someone would have told you, like, in the 19th century. So there was a lot of disillusionment. There were a lot of economic crises, which ended up causing where Japan is today, right? Where governments change every few months, like we don't know about that in Israel. But also the economy has been struggling for over a decade now. And Akira is very much obsessed and interested in talking about these ideas there's even that scene where the business person like his documents fly out of his briefcase and then he has a heart attack yeah that's pathetic he's pathetic and he's like a businessman which says everything's going to be okay don't panic the stock market is going to be fine we're going to recover from this nothing is really happening it's all good but then he like dies in an alley yeah in his own like piss and sweat and it's just pathetic so the movie is really non-apologetic in his statement about Look, okay, we cleaned the slate, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. There was a destruction. Tokyo was destroyed. We didn't build anything better because the people are the same people. The infrastructure is the same infrastructure. We didn't give anything new a chance to actually happen. Yeah, I don't know why. That trope of the briefcase falling down and sort of the businessman realizing while dying that, you know, all of his work was for naught or something like that always really saddens me. There's something really sad about people having as a life objective something that's just what we would call a false consciousness. But to the point about stock market, you can also see that now with how people react to the coronavirus, where there's a lot of discussion, what will happen to the stock market? Because the stock market is sort of the most important representative of success. And I feel like something interesting about Akira is that there's a labor struggle, a strong labor struggle that is... Well, I got to say one thing before you move on, because now that you brought it up, I can't not bring it up. In Akira, the Olympic Games are happening in Tokyo in 2020, like they are today, and the World Health Organization tells them to cancel it. Wow, I forgot about that. Because of... Yeah. And actually, the WHO advised the Japanese government to cancel the Olympic Games in Tokyo a few days ago because of coronavirus. So all of Akira fans were like freaking the fuck out. Oh shit, (laughs) Akira is happening. It's happening. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, go on. Yeah, so there are strong labor disputes sort of in the background of the whole movie. And what's interesting is that they never come to the foreground. And it's a really interesting decision. I wonder if you have something to say about why that is. Because I thought that they were foreshadowing something, but no, there's just in the you know, background, I could basically only figure it out because of the subtitles. Like, you're talking about the, the riots? Yeah, they're constantly work riots, and their sort of slogans are anti-capitalist, pro-labor slogans. It's for minimum yeah. wage, it's for better jobs, it's for stuff like that. And it's all in the background, and our sort of protagonists never get involved with basically any of that. Yeah, there's a few ways for me to answer this. I can go like, and I'll do them in order. The first thing I can do is be like a reductionist and say, oh, you know, the movie is like, it was long enough and there wasn't any room to like explore any more themes. It's already pretty concept heavy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not Ghost in the Shell, which literally has like a philosophy lecture in the middle of the movie, but it's still very heavy and already like weighted down by all the discussion. So maybe there was just wasn't any room in it. But then there's like a more interesting approach that says this is a limitation of cyberpunk, right? 
because cyberpunk only sees structural and social events as backdrop for the individual story right cyberpunk is about the individual and the individual's goal is to self-actualize right it's a very modernist genre yeah. all about discovering your hidden powers and coming to terms with yourself you don't god forbid like tear down the infrastructure or form a collective or whatever it's all about the individual so there was no elegant way inside the genre to transition to discussing like labor disputes and how capitalism's collapse in Japan influences society and stuff like that. And the last answer is that I think that it's just not... Forget cyberpunk and forget the limitations of the movie. It's not a story that Akira wanted to tell. It wanted to tell a story of friendship. And this is like my radical interpretation okay. of Akira that I, I spew whenever someone asks me about this movie. This movie is about what you do when your friend becomes toxic. Oh. Um, and how hard that is to deal with, right? Because the main story is Kaneda and Tetsu, right? Those are the main characters. And if you, you've just watched it, but if you watch it again, and now you don't have to like pay attention as much, they have like 90% of the text in this movie. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. They're constantly in the middle of, of the shot. They're constantly being referenced and they're the most fleshed out characters. And what happens between Kaneda and Tetsu? So Tetsu is like, the second in command. He's not even the second in command. He's like the Omega of the gang, yeah. right? And Canada is like good-looking, charismatic, but he's not a dick. And that's the worst part. At least if he was a dick, like you could hate he's him not for a being villain. a dick. But he's really nice. Yeah, he's not like, you know, the quarterback of the football team who's like pretty and smart, but he's a dick to everyone. No, he's like really nice and he tries to include everyone. And Tetsu kind of like wants to rebel against him, but he can't because he's so nice to the other people. He can't convince them that this guy's like actually keeping Tetsu in the shadow. And that's what actually makes Tetsu encounter the gifted person originally because he's trying to prove himself inside this battle. And then Tetsu has these powers, and Canada makes it about himself. Canada, sorry, not Canada, that's a yeah. country. Canada <laughs> makes it about himself, right? He's like, oh, how can we control this? How can... And Tetsu's like, fuck off. I, I don't want to control this. I'm finally, like, the center of attention. It's finally about me. Don't make this story about you. And then Tetsu kind of breaks away from Canada, and he's in the hospital. And then what happens? A bunch of fucking assholes, like older kids, come to him and say, hey... You don't know what you're doing. These powers must be used for good, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what? No, fuck you. I've been bullied all my life. Like, this is my story. Now I'm awesome. I'm like a secret military project. And they actually scorn him, yeah. right? And that's how he escapes. He doesn't mean to escape. They're fighting and he overuses his powers and he freaks out about what's happening to him and he runs away, right? I'll be linear. So th then he escapes and they're using Canada. They're using, sorry, Canada, goddammit. They're using Canada to like rein this guy in, right? Like the military is using their friendship to calm Tetsu down. They don't really care about Tetsu as evinced by the fact that they fire a fucking orbital laser yeah. at him to stop him. They don't want to save him. They're just using their friendship to like get to him. And then it all culminates, you know, Tetsu like becomes massive. It's like body horror mass. And what does Canada see when he's like submerging into Tetsu? He's seeing his side of the story for the first time. He like sees the history of the other kids, but he also sees Tetsu like growing up in his shadow and realizing like how much of a dick he was to him. Yeah. Like how much of a, of like an overbearing personality he was to everyone around him. And that's the moment where Canada is like, I get it, Tetsu. I get it. I understand why you're so angry. I understand why these powers are like making you crazy because they're finally allowing you to like release this pent up aggression. And I think it's a really touching movie. Like, people don't talk about it enough. Like, this friendship between these two people and how they're kind of, like, overshadowing each other, how they're, they can't talk. There's a communication breakdown that, like, leads to these horrible, horrible events. And that's not to say that all the other stuff that we talked about is not there. But I think inherently it's, like, a story about how friendships are complicated. I wonder if this podcast will eventually be called Eden's Radical Friendship Corner because you... <laughs> sort of like going back there. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think radical friendship is part of it. And Kaneda does have sort of this lesson to learn. But he also doesn't lose track of the fact that Tetsuo is his friend. And I was kind of frustrated with Kaneda to that extent. I was like, this is a huge city destroying force. How are you so invested in your own friendship with it? But eventually, 
Kaneda doesn't only see Tetsuo as that. He also sees him as his friend who's sort of strayed. Uh, but you're right that it does start from a very self-centered perspective. I think the beauty is that you don't have to choose, right? Like, that's why the movie is so good, because it's able to very subtly talk about these things at the same time. It is a story about a city being destroyed, and it is a story about science and what happens when we go too far. And at the same time, it's a story about how friendship can be a powerful force in the face of adversity and oppression. And it does a really good job of tying these things together. Yeah. And I think the last thing, my last point, is about another thing that the story handles with surprising amount of nuance, and that's the concept of violence. Because mm -hmm. violence in this movie has a lot of purposes. So it's definitely a source of control. It's also a source of losing control. It's definitely a source of damage to society, but it's also a source of its healing eventually. And I don't mean that in the sense that the struggle itself is a struggle between good and bad where both sides use violence, but we see violence existing as a sort of independent force within the movie that always escalates situations. So you see it a lot in cases of discipline where an immense amount of force is used to quell protests, to put the kids in their place, and even by internal military power struggle, you know, guns are drawn against these commanders. So I think the movie has a lot of interesting things to say about violence, and I sort of felt them resonate with a lot of points from an essay by Hannah Arendt on violence. Mm -hmm. And yeah. It's a really interesting essay that really resists being turned into bullet points because she's trying to make a lot of points at the same time. Hannah Arendt is German-born. She's a Jewish philosopher, mainly known for covering the Eichmann trial in Israel. And mm -hmm. her cover of the trial was later released as a book called The Banality of Evil, which also has some themes relevant to this, but I won't go into that. And she writes in the 70s this thesis about violence and the way that the left sees violence. And she's critical of Sartre and even Fanon, by the way, who she says sort of idolize violence and think of it as just a liberatory force. And her critique is sort of close to what you said about cyberpunk thinking about just gangster violence. So she even quotes Sartre saying something like that the gangsters will save us or something like that. And she makes a, a bunch of points about violence, some of which, by the way, could be seen as conservative, because she's also saying that the struggle for black liberation shouldn't have been as violent as it was, which I'm not sure. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. So like today, that, that would be an obvious conservative take. In the 70s, I don't know what she was thinking. She's a very problematic person in many cases. But what she has to say about violence is that what happens on the left is that we look at these sort of violent revolutions and we say, what caused change was violence. And she says something really interesting. She said, well, it's obvious to us now with modern states that we can't defeat the government using violence. The government has so much more power than everyone else. But, and this is interesting, she says, we need to distinguish between violence and power. Because the thing that allows the state to use all of its violent force is that it has power over the military, over the people. So what she's saying is, yes, some revolutions will at a certain point get to a violent struggle, and that's fine sometimes, but when you only talk about the use of violence, you sort of forget that you first have to build the power that will allow you to enact this violence. And basically she says that when revolutions succeed, it's mainly because enough of the people were sort of swayed that the state will lose its power over the means of violence. And that's a really nuanced point that I tried to get at yeah. there. And it does run the risk of sort of, you know, what Martin Luther King called, what is it? Uh, I don't know. I, I would call it the centrist right now, but he had a different name for it. Yeah, the great stumbling block. Yeah, the great stumbling block is like the white liberal that prefers just silence and peace, the absence of disruption, but not the yeah. presence of justice. The sanctity of peace over the sacredness of justice. Exactly. So it does run the risk of saying that, but also there are questions about how even when you employ violence, you should do it sort of tactically. And what we yeah. see in Akira is how violence just used as a sort of outburst just leads to an escalation and more violence and no actual control or progress. Yeah, I think we're touching on, you know, the classic debate between Marxist-Leninists and anarchists, right? And 
we haven't talked about our own positions, but I'm kind of like in a weird middle place between these two ideologies. And I do think the Marxist-Leninist critique is powerful. It, what it says is this violence, if it doesn't, if it's not aimed at organizing something, then how do you expect the violence to like escalate into a more just state or like a more just state of things, right? There's like magical thinking there. Oh, we'll cause enough violence, we'll cause enough chaos. And then the state will break down and will form the utopia and don't ask questions about what happens in between. Whereas Marxist-Leninists are like, no, there are set stages that need to happen between the violence and this utopia in order for us to get there. And so violence has to be directed and planned. And I totally agree with you that in Akira, they're trying to make the, the statement that, yeah, if you just like lash out, then what does that do? It doesn't do anything. Okay, cool, you have a nice biker gang, but... You're not bringing down the military. The people in the riot are still getting shot, right? Like the military opens fire on the rioters. So what exactly did you accomplish with your delinquency? Yeah, and I think you can see present-day movements struggling with this idea and trying to come up with better solutions. And you see a movement like Black Lives Matters, for example, that wasn't afraid of using violence in key points, but it was also very sort of reined in and aware of where exactly you know, violence was used to attract the attention that it needed to attract. And then the people who sort of extolled the use of violence say, well, look at, a, you know, has BLM achieved racial justice? And the answer is obviously not. We're not living in a racially just USA right now. But it's not clear that just turning up the valve of violence in itself would have somehow contributed to getting to a more just place. It does lead to... Yeah more, I mean, more police resistance, more riots. So sometimes violence just gives you the sort of feeling that something is happening, that we're not doing nothing. But yeah, it's not clear that that's necessarily better. You at least need to have sort of a theory of a change, how you get through this violence to somewhere. And I'll just finish by saying that you've mentioned the Democratic primaries and a lot of people on the left side that see Bernie Sanders as not an ideal, but definitely the best that we can do under the democratic establishment, are saying, if the party takes it away from us, we won't let them. We'll show them or something like that. And I think something about that <laughs> fails to recognize that bureaucratic power, by the way, Hannah Arendt defines in this article bureaucratic power as power wielded by no one. So there's no one to kill. Yeah. The bureaucracy itself yeah. is just not a person. Yeah. And it doesn't help that we sort of try to push to the side the fact that we don't know who to kill. And it could be the case that it's just to kill whoever is in charge of racial violence, right? But there isn't anyone to kill. So just railing against no one in itself won't be a proper solution. We need something better. And I think to bring it back to Akira, what Akira sort of shows is what you need to solve are the underlying conflicts. You need to somehow resolve them. And that's really difficult. Focusing on the violence is just, is very flashy. It draws your eye, but that's not how the conflict is resolved. Yeah, so bringing it back to what I said about like, when the moment of apotheosis finally shows up is when Canada and Tetsu actually face their issues. Before that, Canada tries to fire yeah. like a laser rifle at Tetsu. And then the state tries to bombard him from orbit, and that does nothing. On the contrary, it does the classic, you've only made me stronger, right? And that's totally feeding into what you're just saying. Oh, you just threw like a bigger weapon at him. No, no, you need to solve the actual thing that's fueling his anger and violence, and not just like throw a bigger stick. Or, and to finish my point, to quote the timeless clash, quote, he who fucks nuns will yeah. one day join the church which is like one of the most brilliant lines ever written in rock and roll, and I think is really relevant to the discussion here. Like, if you go and smash windows in 30 or 40 years, you'll be building those windows and you'll be on the other side because you didn't enact structural change and you didn't address the actual issues. You just lashed out yeah. at the new And that's time. where Akira differs from a lot of cyberpunk, where I feel that Akira is still uncomfortable about just an individual you know, smashing stuff. Yeah, totally. And it has more critique, it has yeah. more things to say about it. So, do you have any other underlying points for Akira? No, I think we did a pretty good job of covering it, yeah. Yeah, great movie, really recommend to see it. Classic, all-time classic, really. Just deserves 
every award. Every, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it does take some getting used to anime for me. Not my favorite style, and I have to sort of always get used again to the tropes of it. Yeah. But it's a really good piece of anime, so maybe it's a good place to start. One last thing. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to leave it to the end because it's like tangible, but it's very interesting. The music, the soundtrack of Akira, one of my all-time favorite soundtracks. The theme song is just one of the most powerful pieces of music I've ever heard. But the story of how it was made is also really interesting. So it was written by a musical collective. I'm going to butcher the name. I'm sorry. Geino Yamashiro Gumi. Um, that wasn't that bad. That was uh, probably think. perfect. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good, which is actually composed of hundreds of people working around the world and non-musicians, journalists, doctors, engineers, students, and so on, that came together to make music. The album they did before, they actually had to learn to program, to teach themselves to program, oh. to use like the synthesizers and MIDI and stuff that was like very influenced by that album. And they did the same for the soundtrack here. They wrote everything and they performed it under a pseudonym. But it's a very, very interesting group. They were actually inspired, this one guy, the guy who founded them, Tsutomo Ohashi. He was influenced by communes in post-war Japan, and they collaborated and everything and took credit together. And I think even the royalties were like spent together as a collective. So it's just a very interesting group. And it's very interesting in the context of Akira. Yeah, I really like how some of the things we're touching on are not only carrying anarchist kind of messages, but have sort of anarchist elements in their creation. Yeah. Totally. So, have you been reading or watching anything interesting lately? Yes, I finished Radiance. I bet you saw that because I posted about yeah. it everywhere because I was going fucking crazy about it. Wait, I want to I wanna get her name right. She has like a kind of complicated name. Catherine M. Valente. So, I buy books today using blurbs. Like if other authors recommend something, then I'll buy it. And this book not only had a Warren Ellis blurb in it, but it actually opens with a dedication. Sorry, at the end, it has a dedication to Roger Zelesny, yeah. um, one of the most underread fucking science fiction authors, amazing master that not enough people know. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm reading this. And let me set this up for you. It's decopunk. So what if humanity reached the stars in the 1920s? And the deco, the art deco movement... And like the roaring 20s kind of vibe became the ruling power of the solar system. So World War I didn't happen because there was room to expand to the stars. But the European nations like transferred the colonial project to the planet. And Hollywood, silent film and black and white films ruled the day. Inside of the setting, it tells a story about documentary filmmaker who's the daughter of like this really famous fantasy and pulp filmmaker and she like hates untruth and she hates lies and she wants to tell the truth mm. and villages towns all over this like solar empire start disappearing and she starts following them and she disappears as well so it uses a lot of like avant-garde and metafiction techniques like it tells some of the story as a script for a different movie and as they change directions in the movie the story changes with it. So they decide to start it as a noir story. So the story is noir, but then they want a goth story. So it becomes like a vampire hunter story. I mean, it does really weird things with time and place and setting, but most of all, it's just very touching and very, very wise in how it talks about memory, identity, the stories we tell ourselves, parents, and also cinema and illusion. It's very well written. It's hard to read because it's so fragmentary, but it's super interesting. And I didn't even touch about, like, it has stuff about veganism and aliens and what we should do with them and technology and society and capitalism and all sorts of shit. It's a really, really good book, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, I was sold when you said it sort of explores the themes of truth. That's my favorite kind of mm. idea to explore it, in a book. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not just about truth, but also how do we weaponize lies? And how do we, when it's okay to lie and why it's okay to lie? Like, is fiction a lie? All <laughs> these like interesting questions. So yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Good. So I've just finished playing Persona 5. Not actually mm. finished, just, you know, they end with these unending uh, cutscenes. So yeah. I'm not at the end of the end, but let's <laughs> say that I finished it. And it's interesting. I'm, by the way, not going to spoil any of the plot, but I am going to sort of talk about themes. So if anyone cares. 
it's a game that tells you that it's anarchist in the starting title, and I've never seen this kind <laughs> of aesthetic where it's just strong red and black. It's like not even joking. Mm-hmm. And so it's all in red and black, and you know, reality is a little bit distorted, and everything just screams, not even punk, it screams specifically anarchist. And then for most of the game, I was really surprised because the game focused on sort of reforming individuals. So a lot of the evil of society came from individuals. And then in the final twist, which is a little bit late to introduce that idea, but in the final twist, we sort of understand that what's been behind all of the societal troubles we've been struggling with isn't individuals that are bad, but a false consciousness. Just a consciousness that has been distorted by the wrong kind of desires, uh, fear, and, I don't know, fear of thinking for yourself. These are simple themes, it's still a game. And it's a really interesting twist, and it's something like, I was thinking of this critique while playing the game, and I really liked how the twist sort of leaned hard into that. And then, because of that, there are a couple of themes that become more important, so there's just a a little bit more anarchism. The heroes there... um, become heroes by wearing masks, which is important for Antifa and stuff. But also there's the importance of a trickster figure, which is a figure that does good by sort of challenging the current establishment. Hmm, It's it's important in a lot of very different indigenous mythologies and philosophy. And also Le Guin is fascinated by that idea and tries to write about trickster figures. Or if you want, Disney's Moana has a trickster figure. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really interesting use of that character and sort of linking it with anarchism. I'll just say that the game is problematic in many ways. It's very sexist. There's a lot of problems with it that are just rampant in some anime. But there you have it. Some good things about that game. Cool. Uh, So that's what we have for you today. Um, Yeah. If you want more just quality science fiction with an anarchist bent, please go to anarchysf.com. There's a huge reading list there, and we're always updating the list while also improving the website. And you can follow us on Twitter. That's at anarchy underscore sf. And for next time, we haven't chosen a thing yet. Do you want to choose it right now, or we'll let people know through Twitter? Let's just go, like, and do the thing we have to do and do Philip K. Dick. Which work? I guess you'll find out next time. Okay, so we're promising it's going to be a Philip K. Dick, but not which work it's Probably Follow My Tears. Yeah. Well, Phil, yeah. I haven't read that, so that would be a good excuse. Yeah. So, cool. until then, thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.